because I have a dream. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. How are you doing, David? Ah, doing pretty well. Neil, how about you? I am good. If you haven't connected with us on social media yet, at When Art Thou on all your favorite social media platforms, that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, give us a follow. We post all our new episodes there, plus other stuff. So it's always good to know what's going on. And speaking of what's going on, we have a podcast to get to. So David, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it's May 9th, 1671, and the wardens of the famed Tower of London are pacing out their rounds on another peaceful, boring day. Suddenly, a man bursts out from inside the jewel house where the crown jewels of Great Britain are kept and rushes for a horse. From inside the house, another man's voice cries, Treason! The crown is stolen! Guards rush to stop the man trying to escape, but he pulls out a pistol and fires, wounding the closest of his pursuers. The dramatic chase only comes to an end as he reaches the wall, ready to break out to freedom, only to find that he's too late. The iron gate has already been closed and barred. There's no way out. Dun-dun-dun, drama, David. We've got a criminal trying to escape with the crown from the Tower of London. But it seems like the security measures were too much, David. They've got the gate shut. So this is like an outer gate around the entire complex, I guess, that would have now everyone is trapped inside. Exactly. And it's worth noting that, of course, the Tower of London is quite a large fortress, And it has multiple gates around its wall. But for our criminal attempting to escape, having tried to reach the closest gate and get out in time, he's now in trouble because this gate is closed. And of course, trying to move around inside the Tower of London now, the wardens are closing in. Escape is impossible. So it sounds like the security system worked. David, do they catch this guy now? He can't get out of there. Indeed. Mr. Thomas Blood, who usually describes himself as Colonel Thomas Blood, although it's not exactly clear what military, what army he claims to be a colonel in, is captured along with four accomplices and red-handed. They're holding on to the crown jewels, including the scepter, which they've sawn in half in order to hide inside a bag and the crown itself which they've actually flattened with a hammer in order to make it more compact and portable for their planned escape so who are these guys david who is thomas blood so thomas blood is originally from ireland he moved to england fairly early on this is the 1600s of course england is colonizing ireland at this point there's a lot of back and forth travel so that bit isn't too shocking then the english civil war broke out he was initially a soldier on the royalist side then the royalists were losing so he switched sides and joined the republicans and oliver cromwell and worked for them for a little bit is that where he got the colonel title 
Well, he doesn't seem to have reached the rank of colonel in either the Royalist or the Republican armies, although he certainly was a soldier in both. He may have been a lieutenant or a captain. Frankly, a lot of Mr. Blood's history is going to be kind of unclear because even as early as the English Civil War, he was mostly working not as a frontline soldier, although he did some of that, but he mostly worked as a spy, basically, as an intelligence officer, scouting and spying and gathering information for his various superiors. So a lot of that, a lot of the details of the work he did are very hidden. But we do know that after the war, he went back to Ireland, this time working for Oliver Cromwell in his brutal conquest of Ireland and the following on colonization there. And in the short term, Mr. Blood profited greatly because, of course, Cromwell was confiscating various estates from the Catholics in Ireland and giving them out to his various supporters. And Mr. Blood was one of those supporters. He got an estate in Ireland, and it seemed like he was going to settle down and become a landowner in Ireland. But everything changed with the restoration of the monarchy after Oliver Cromwell's death, because Charles II came back, became king, and unsurprisingly was not a particular friend of Oliver Cromwell's friends. So Thomas Blood lost the estate that he'd gotten from Oliver Cromwell because it was being given back to its original owners, or possibly to some of King Charles II's friends who claimed to be the original owners, but Mr. Blood was out, which in turn drove him back to what he knew best, weird, sketchy, spying-related kind of work. And at this point, he initially becomes involved in a revolutionary group in Ireland that wants to rise up in support of the old Cromwell regime, even though Oliver Cromwell's dead, the old Republican ideals against the monarchy. And the revolution, of course, is the failure. Colonel Blood's part in it, and this may be where he got the colonel title, simply because, like many revolutionary groups, this group seems to have handed out high ranks to supporters frequently without really having the soldiers so that they would be actually commanding a unit of the size a colonel would usually command. But certainly the titles were being thrown around. Anyway, Colonel Blood at this point was involved in a very specific action. He was trying to kidnap the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Viscount Ormond, and hold him to ransom with the idea being that the revolutionaries would be able to get the monarchists to leave Ireland in order to keep alive their Lord Lieutenant. Seems like a big hope, David. Were they really going to just abandon Ireland to save this one guy? It certainly seems unlikely that it could ever have worked. It didn't work. They didn't successfully kidnap the Viscount. And in the end, the revolution was a failure. Colonel Blood has to flee Ireland. He flees to Holland, which is at this point at war with England. So the Dutch are certainly ready to accept any 
anti-English elements coming their way. And then he spends some time in the Netherlands. He works with the famous Admiral de Reuter, who was one of the admirals commanding the Dutch war against the English. He gets involved with a rebellion in Scotland against English rule, which seems to be tied to the Dutch trying to cause trouble for King Charles any way they can. That's a failure too. And so he flees back to Holland for a bit, but he's having trouble in Holland because the war ends, the Anglo-Dutch war ends. It's the second Anglo-Dutch war, technically. And once it's over, they don't really have a use for Colonel Blood and they don't really want to pay him. And he doesn't really have the Dutch language skills to work in the Netherlands and support himself. So he ends up going back to England under a false name, claims to be a doctor. He's now calling himself Dr. Allen, and he's living in London and doing a bunch of sketchy work to try and support himself because he doesn't really have the skills, or at least we don't have any record of him having the skills, to support himself as a successful doctor because obviously he's never studied medicine at any point. Wow, David, that is quite the life so far for Thomas Blood here. He's been on both sides of a war. He's been in a revolution. He's been to the Netherlands. And now he's pretending to be a doctor. This guy has really gotten around. So I'm only scratching the surface of the big, big stuff here. Thomas Blood, in addition to these big international events that he's sort of flitting through as a sketchy figure, is also a petty criminal on a regular basis who's been involved with a number of relatively small criminal activities and so that seems to be tied to the next set of occurrences and now we're going to move a bit more towards the heist at the tower of london but also right before the heist there's three events all of them incredibly sketchy and the details are disputed to this day so the first one is an assassination attempt, an assassination attempt on the Viscount Ormond, the same one that Thomas Blood tried to kidnap all the way back in Ireland. So we're back to this guy now, David, Viscount Ormond. This is the man that they thought they could trade for Ireland. That didn't work out. Now they're trying to kill him? Yes. So we know that happened. We've got the records of the attack on Viscount Ormond and four men with pistols attempt to assassinate him. And after the Tower of London heist, this gets pinned on Colonel Blood. What we don't know very much about is why. This is a very, you know, there's stories that maybe he blamed Colonel Blood, blamed the failure of the revolution in Ireland on Ormond in some way. Maybe he's plotting this is revenge, but it's a long, there's been years since the revolution happened. It's not really a better chance than he would have had earlier, so it's strange that he chose this moment. 
There's rumors that he was being funded by some of Ormond's political enemies in King Charles's court. Those will become important later. The critical enemy of Ormond in King Charles's court is the Duke of Buckingham. And anyway, it's a very strange event, but we know it occurred. And certainly at the time, people suspected Thomas Blood. And frankly, given his ridiculous criminal history, even though there's not a lot of evidence tying him directly to that particular attack, it seems plausible. Okay, so that's sketchy thing number one, David. Plausible that he was part of this assassination attempt. What comes next? So the next sketchy thing ties right into this, which is various claims that Thomas Blood was communicating with the Duke of Buckingham. And there's claims of a meeting, there's claims of letters. It's very unclear whether this actually happened or whether this is a later theories after the Tower of London heist, but when he becomes famous. But there's definitely a lot of claims that Thomas Blood and the Duke of Buckingham are conspiring together somehow around this time period. And why why is that strange, David? Well, it's strange because Thomas Blood, up until now, has been an anti-monarchy rebel working for the Dutch, who are the enemies of the British monarchy at this time in history, kind of figure. Even though he worked for the Royalists right at the start of the English Civil War, he's not somebody you would associate with working with the senior nobility of the land to do anything. And even if for some reason he was the kind of person the Duke of Buckingham wanted to get to know, the interesting question is, what would the Duke of Buckingham want Thomas Blood to do? What what useful skills does Thomas Blood have that might attract the Duke of Buckingham to work in with him? And that's a little unclear, but there might be, there might be some reasons. He does have some skills and some connections. Okay, David, so this is all very strange. A bunch of kind of weird rumors, maybe they're happening, things all around this Thomas Blood character. What's the third sketchy event? Well, the third event we only know from Thomas Blood's own statement after he got captured at the Tower of London. So I'm going to actually leave it off until we're discussing that, until we're discussing what happened to Thomas Blood after the heist. Okay, does that mean we can get to the heist, David? Let's get to the heist. All right, let's get some Ocean's Eleven up in here. How are they going to steal the crown jewels of England? Well, the first documented event in the plan that would lead to this famous heist attempt, Thomas Blood, not using his real name, and a woman who he claims is his wife, although, again, not his real wife, enter the Tower of London, which at the time, just like today, was a thing you could do. You could go on a sort of tourist, enter the Tower of London and see the sights kind of thing when the king wasn't in residence. And they go and they want to see the crown jewels. Now that wasn't free, but it was allowed. You could pay a fee to the keeper of the jewel house 
a man named Talbot Edwards, who was a ex-soldier with a good reputation, and he would let you see the crown jewels on display in a little sort of, you know, display case, just like a modern museum. And so it wasn't as busy as the modern Tower of London would be, but it was an accepted thing you could do. And Mr. Blood and his wife walked in, and they wanted to see the jewels, and they paid their fee, and Mr. Edwards was giving his recitation like a modern museum tour guide telling you about the artifacts. And suddenly, the woman accomplice, the fake wife, claimed to have a stomach ache, a terrible stomach ache, and she just couldn't stand up. And she collapsed dramatically to the floor. And Mr. Blood, of course, was deeply upset and asked Mr. Edwards if there was any way they could get her to somewhere she could lie down to recover. And Mr. Edwards, being a reasonable, decent person, said, yes, I live in this building. I'm the keeper of the jewel house. We'll take her up to my bed in my family's quarters and she can rest and recover and then we'll move her out. Hopefully, if she gets better, or if she doesn't, then we'll get whatever the 1670s equivalent of a ambulance is to come and get her home. And so she goes, she lies down, and a couple of minutes later, she makes a miraculous recovery. And Thomas Blood and this woman walk out. But as they walk out, they're very grateful. And Mr. Blood says, I'd really like to give you something. I'm so grateful. I want to come back later and give you a gift. Is that okay? And of course, Mr. Edwards says, you don't have to, but that's totally fine if you want to. So a couple of days later, Colonel Blood and the fake wife turn up again. This time they just want to give a gift to say thank you. And they're chatting with Mr. Edwards about his family and everything. And they ask, you seem great. Do you have any daughters? And Mr. Edwards says, yes, I just happened to have a daughter living with me. And Mr. Blood says, oh, I just happened to have a nephew who's incredibly wealthy and he's looking to get married right now. Would it be okay if I introduced him to your daughter? Could we arrange something like that? And Mr. Edwards says, that sounds great. And so they arrange for a private after hours little dinner party that will be Mr. Blood under his fake name, his fake wife, his fake nephew, and a friend or two just to make it, you know, less obviously forcing the two young people together and more natural. And so that gets arranged. And then on the day of the dinner party, everybody shows up. And the Edwards are delighted. And once everybody's sort of sitting down, Blood says to Edwards, how about you and I and my friends sort of slip out and see the crown jewels? Because my friends want to see the crown jewels. They've never seen them. And, you know, we should give the young people some time alone since that's sort of what this dinner party's all about. And, of course, Edwards is thrilled. It's a great idea. So he leaves alone with the two friends and Mr. Blood to go and see the crown jewels. And once he's opened all of the doors and everything and gotten them into the vault where the crown jewels are held, suddenly 
one of the friends drops a cloak over his head so that he can't see, smacks him with a mallet, and all of a sudden, Blood and his two accomplices are grabbing the jewels and cutting any jewels that don't fit down to size so that they can get them into the bag that Blood is going to use in his escape and hammering down the crown so that they can fit it into the bag too. And as soon as they've got everything they can into the bag, Blood starts heading out the doors as quickly as possible, heading for his horse, because, of course, he's hoping to make the ride out quickly while his two accomplices try and keep Edwards trapped and shut up with no way to to warn the other guards. Wow, David, quite the heist. They've been planning this. This is really like something out of a Hollywood movie. They've got all these steps, the fake wife, the apparently fake stomach ache, and then you've got the plan to get the daughter involved. This is just like some next level work as they had this all schemed out. They've got the jewels and blood is making his beeline for the exit. What could possibly go wrong? Well, unfortunately for Colonel Blood, he'd forgotten to consider that dinner parties, you usually like if you're inviting a bunch of people and their friends over for dinner, you don't just invite only strangers. And so he'd hadn't thought that Edwards might invite somebody to show up and that that person might be late. That person was Wythe Edwards. He was Talbot Edwards' son. And he was in the military just like his father had been, which is why he didn't live at home and why he was a little bit late coming to what he thought was going to be a dinner party to maybe help set up his sister with a rich guy. And as he walks through the door, suddenly there's this guy trying to burst out the doors, this person he's never met, never seen, holding a bag and just running like mad. And he sort of holds out his arm and says, whoa, whoa, buddy, like what's, you know, slow down. Wow, David, all of this comes down to the sun being late for dinner. I guess this is why you should be fashionably late. It's certainly an excellent argument that maybe punctuality isn't all that people crack it up to be. And that's really all it takes. Blood, of course, manages to get around past the young Mr. Edwards and get to his horse. But by that point, the young Mr. Edwards knows that things are wrong, that this is a theft, and he's shouting. And Talbot, once he realizes that the two guards who are watching him are distracted, is also shouting. And the guards on the walls know that there's a theft going on and they start closing all the gates and sending patrols into the tower. And suddenly the whole plan in an instant moves from being a carefully planned heist with elegant, careful, long con scheming to just a crazy rush. Who will be faster? The guards on the gate trying to get it shut or Colonel Blood on his horse trying to get through it. And we already know how that one turns out. Not so good for Thomas Blood, David. He almost, almost pulled it off. If only the sun hadn't shown up late for dinner. He was clear and away. But now he is caught with the crown jewels on his person. He's guilty of sin, David. I mean, yes, certainly it doesn't seem like an impossible 
thing to prosecute if a prosecutor were to bring a case. And certainly in the immediate aftermath, the guards grab them and make sure they've got the crown jewels returned to the jewel house and they put them in a cell and they start trying to interrogate them. And Colonel Blood announces that he will only speak to the King of England in person and then refuses to say anything more to anyone else. David, if this was a Hollywood movie, it would turn out that getting caught was all part of the plan so that he could speak to the king. Is that what's going to happen here? Well, maybe not the all part of the plan bit, but King Charles II is interested in figuring out what happened. And when he hears that this Colonel Blood is refusing to speak to anyone else, he orders that the cell be searched and Colonel Blood's person be searched to make sure that there's no risk. And then he goes and organizes an audience so that he will speak in person with Mr. Blood and determine what to do, what steps to take going forward. Well, David, it's certainly not something I could see like Queen Elizabeth doing, going down to the jail to speak to a criminal who only will talk to her. But I guess things were a little bit different in 1671. What story does Thomas Blood have for the king once he gets there? All right. So our knowledge of this conversation, of course, is secondhand. Neither Colonel Blood nor King Charles II will ever write down their own personal recollection of what was said. But we do have a number of courtiers of King Charles II who wrote down what they heard had been said between these two men in this jail cell. And it's fascinating. First off, a number of accounts agree the first thing that Colonel Blood told King Charles II. You remember earlier in this episode, I was talking about three strange things that occurred right before the Tower of London heist that I didn't discuss the third one. That's right, David. The first one was the assassination attempt. The second one was his communication with the Duke of Buckingham. What was the third one? The third one was Thomas Blood tells King Charles II to his face that almost immediately before the tower heist in the same year, 1671, he had been paid to assassinate King Charles II, and he'd found out that the king would be bathing at the Thames, swimming in the River Thames, alone, had snuck down to the riverbank with a rifle, to assassinate him, but when he saw King Charles II's face, he was so in awe of his majesty that he couldn't do it and didn't pull the trigger and just left. And that's the first argument he brings up to ask for a pardon. He wants a pardon for his attempt to steal the crown jewels, and his first argument is, I got paid to assassinate you, but I didn't do it. Wow, that certainly seems like quite the story, David, especially for this guy who's been a soldier, a spy. He's been on both sides of battle. You would think it would really take something for him not to pull the trigger on this assassination job he'd been paid to do. So he uh, must have either really thought that King Charles's face was quite majestic or maybe something 
fishy about this assassination attempt, this so-called assassination attempt. It certainly seems very fishy. There do not seem to be a lot of details, and there's the whole question of why the king would have been alone in the first place and how Colonel Blood would have known that that was occurring. But at the same time, if that kind of detail was false, you would think that King Charles II would immediately know that it was false he could just ask you know what day was that and then go oh you're totally lying so it's very bizarre very bizarre and the interview frankly continues to be bizarre as colonel blood goes into the whole story of his daring tower heist and throws in a few more fun stories about his past and includes that as his sort of second argument for why he should be pardoned as sort of, you know, I'm a charming rogue who does charming roguish things. And really, is it a crime that sometimes I try and steal incredibly valuable public objects? And King Charles II says, sure, that seems fine. You seem fun. Why don't I give you a pardon? Well, David, I guess the royal pardon system has evolved a little bit over the years. It seems somewhat bizarre that the king would think, hey, you're just a fun guy. I'm going to give you a pardon, but I guess good on King Charles II here. Is he going to just sign it up like that and let Thomas Blood walk away? This guy who claims to have attempted to assassinate him and definitely attempted to steal his jewels. So even in 1671, pretty much everybody thought that seemed bizarre, strange, impossible, but it happened. The King Charles just signed off on a pardon, not only for Thomas Blood, but for his accomplices, letting the entire crew who had just attempted to knock over the Tower of London walk free. And almost immediately, people began speculating what the real reason was, because no one could believe that King Charles II, who admittedly had a certain reputation as a rake and a playboy and not a very serious person, but even so, no one could believe that he just granted this pardon purely for the fun of hearing a heist story. That does seem bizarre, David. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks it's bizarre. I'm glad people back then thought it was bizarre too, because that seems very strange to me. It's a great story, but... Hardly seems like enough to get you out of prison. David, are there any reasons why he might have let Thomas Blood go that seem to make sense? So there are two very common theories. The first one is simply that he wanted Thomas Blood to work for him. If you believe that Thomas Blood had been some kind of wild and crazy spy working for the Dutch, maybe with assassination orders... This might be as simple as he's flipping sort of the James Bond of the 1670s from working for his enemies to working for him. And it is true that he would give Colonel Blood some minor jobs around the court that we know of publicly that he paid him for. So possibly those payments are for some more, you know, spy related activities. So that's one theory. The second theory is maybe more plausible, but a lot crazier. 
Okay, David, yeah, that makes some sense, I guess. Maybe he wanted to get this spy onto his side. Seems like he could have just left him in prison, but I guess if he's a good spy, worth having him on the payroll, and, and there is some evidence to back that up. But I like crazy, so what's theory number two? So what you have to understand is that in the late 1660s, the English traditional taxation system had basically failed. That was one of the causes of the English Civil War was simply that the old English taxation system didn't raise enough money to pay for the English military and the English court and everything else the English government needed. And after the Civil War, Cromwell had created a new taxation system that worked, but everyone hated it because it meant that taxes were higher. So when King Charles II was restored, one of the first things he did was switched back to the old taxation system, which meant that basically immediately there just wasn't enough money to pay for half of the things that the English government absolutely needed to do. And that was an ongoing crisis for King Charles II for basically his entire reign. And that had big effects on the military. The Second Anglo-Dutch War, the Dutch actually sailed up the Thames all the way to Medway, nearly to London itself. And the English Navy couldn't stop them because the English sailors hadn't been paid for months and they just weren't you know, working, weren't fighting. So there were big financial crises going on. But one of those crises that's more directly important to this story was King Charles II personally. His money came out of the fund for the entire English court. And if the court wasn't funded, neither was Charles II. Wow, David, a real uh, sort of fiscal cliff problem here. They just aren't raising enough taxes. And the answer to that is pretty simple, raise taxes. But uh, nobody likes when they raise taxes. So... It's a bit of a catch-22. How does Thomas Blood possibly fit into this problem? So Charles II was perennially short of money, not just for his whole government, but for himself personally. Like, he had expenses, you know? He lived a crazy, rakish lifestyle and went out to plays, and he drank and all kinds of wild playboy kind of things. And that's not free. And so he was always short of money. So the theory is, what if the heist on the Tower of London wasn't really a heist? What if it was an inside job? What if Charles II and the Duke of Buckingham were working with this crazy lowlife to steal the crown jewels so that then... They could sell them and finance Charles's lifestyle. And with the right level of having Charles make sure that the right people turned a blind eye to things like the crown jewels being fenced overseas, they could get away with it if only one kid hadn't been late for the dinner party. An inside job, David. It all makes sense now quite the scheme and hard to imagine the king of england being so broke he has to recruit this low-life spy to steal his own jewelry and then sell it to get money for his lifestyle 
But David, crazy times in 1671. Is there any evidence for this story? Anything that might point to it actually being true? So the evidence, as you would imagine, is very thin. The big one, of course, is the pardon itself. It's hard to see why else Charles II wouldn't want to prosecute this criminal unless Thomas Blood had something that Charles II didn't want him saying in, say, a public court of law. But David, David, really, a king, a president, they wouldn't just pardon somebody because they were an accomplice in their crime and they might turn on them if they went to court, would they? So the other strand of evidence that's tied in here, of course, is the allegations that Thomas Blood and the Duke of Buckingham were communicating with each other before the Tower heist happened, which would help to explain the link between King Charles and Thomas Blood. And again, it's pretty thin, but there is some evidence that there may have been a meeting, which is certainly not evidence that that meeting was about trying to steal the crown jewels. So ultimately, it's not an airtight case, certainly not something you could prosecute King Charles II for in a modern court of law, but there is some suggestive evidence that it might just be possible. Well, David, it certainly is a wild story. The heist of the crown jewels of England just inches, inches away from being pulled off. If only the son of the keeper of the jewel house hadn't shown up late for dinner, they would have gotten away with it. And maybe they includes the King of England himself. And David, amazing. All of this took place exactly 350 years ago this year. Quite the anniversary for this story. Thanks for telling us. I always enjoy it, Neil. Well, David, we hope people will follow us on social media at When Art Thou. And we always like to end with a quiz. So are you ready for a quiz, Dave? I could do a quiz, Neil. All right, David, you may know this if you've been following Jeopardy since the tragic passing of Sudbury's Alex Trebek, who was, of course, the host of Jeopardy for so many years. They've been having a rotating cast of hosts standing in. So I thought it might be fun to do some different questions about history from the various different Jeopardy hosts. So I have five categories for you, each category from a different host, and you'll get one question of each value in each category. So here are your categories for Jeopardy, David. Category one, Mixin with Nixon, Historic Weapons, Hopeful History, History Quick Shots, and Kings and Queens. David, what category and what value would you like? The board is yours. I'll take Historic Weapons for 200, Neil. All right, David, historic weapons for 200. This question came from host Aaron Rodgers. He's the quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, also a Celebrity Jeopardy winner. So here is your answer. The 1275 BC Battle of Kadesh saw 5,000 of these battle vehicles rolling around in a melee. What are war chariots, Neil? You've got it, David. Chariots is correct. You still control the board, pick a category, and a clue value. I'll take Mixon with Nixon for 400, Neil. All right, this category, David, was host Anderson Cooper, the CNN anchor. 
After Nixon's resignation, this ABC anchorwoman helped him edit his memoirs. Wow. I really do not know the answer to this one. Uh, I'm trying to think of who might be a ABC anchorwoman of the appropriate period, but I'm just pulling up a blank. I'm afraid I can't even come up with a plausible guess, Neil. We were looking for Diane Sawyer, David. I'll take kings and queens for 800, Neil. All right, David, this question came from Dr. Oz, the TV doctor personality and the category kings and queens. Here's the answer. Son of Olaf, King Harold V of this country lived in exile outside of Washington, D.C. during World War II. Well, the country sounds Scandinavian with the names of the kings, and I imagine that it can't be Sweden since they remained neutral and were never invaded, so I'm going to have to go and say that the question should be, what is Norway? You're correct, David, and we'll give you bonus points here because Amal Dore, who was on the show that night, actually said, what is Sweden? So you correctly outguessed Amal. All right, David, you have two categories left, history quick shots or hopeful history, and you have the $600 and $1,000 clues. History quick shots for 600, Neil. All right, David. The host of this game was Ken Jennings. The Jeopardy champion holds the record for most wins in a row. All right, David, you'll just have to imagine this. Depicted here is some Lancaster on York action in these wars. I know it's a podcast. We really need to get away for you to see the picture, but I think you can picture it. I think it's possible that I can picture it. And I am going to say that the question should be, what are the Wars of the Roses? You are absolutely correct, David, for $600. One category, one clue left here for you. This is hopeful history for a thousand. And the host that night was Katie Couric, the television journalist. And here's your answer. Starting in 1901, this steel man's philanthropic efforts distributed about $350 million to help schools, libraries, and others. You know, it's the library's connection that makes me think that the question here should be, who is Andrew Carnegie? You are absolutely correct, David, bringing your total for tonight to 2,200. Thanks for playing along on Jeopardy. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.